thing that makes me so angry is rich people can go buy bottled water, you know. This is what we feed to our people, and, and the bottling companies get the good stuff for nothing. How's that? All right. They don't want this shit. They don't want the shallow stuff. It's only just recently that Antarctica has been included in our predictions of sea level rise. The evidence we're getting is that we have severely underestimated the contribution of the Antarctic ice sheet to future sea level rise. Think about first, what is litigation about these climate change hazards all about? And what's it going to look like? And it's, of course, it's going to be basic. Someone's going to suffer some damage and they're going to look around for someone to blame. Kia ora, I'm Teresa Cowie and this is Water. series about Aotearoa's water and some of the researchers who are dedicating their lives to understanding and protecting it. I'll find out what drives them and how they cope with researching the difficult, sometimes unpopular questions as they spend their days figuring out the possibilities for what can at times seem like a near apocalyptic future for our planet and its life force, water. this podcast, I'm catching up with Dr Mike Joy. He's a freshwater ecologist and senior researcher with Victoria University's School of Government. His life's taken him from working as a labourer on bone-dry sheep farms in Australia to an academic career where he researches freshwater, what lives in it, what we're doing to it and what it might be doing to us. He's known for butting up against some of our biggest industries, farming and tourism. He challenges the idea that farming is king in our country and that our waterways are there to quench the thirst of land unsuitable to livestock farming and to act as sewers for their paddocks. He's also hit out against Tourism New Zealand's 100% pure slogan. Just to remind you, anyone out here who still thinks that we're clean and green. I, I could spend a whole hour talking about the reality, but this is just one of the, the um, recent paper Making our dirty little secret into international headlines and embarrassing the then Prime Minister and Tourism Minister John Key. And it's not easy being the bearer of bad news about our country's biggest export earners. Doing what I'm doing, and it can be a pretty negative space when you're highlighting issues like that, and you end up fighting a lot of the time and angry a lot of the time. His role's now gone from purely research and teaching to advocacy and getting the word out about the dire state of our fresh water and lecture theatres. And basically saying, look, we, the Crown, the government, whatever, has completely failed fresh water in New Zealand, you know? It's blatantly obvious. Why don't we admit that we've completely failed and, and, and start again? Select committees, town halls, international conferences and even sending in grumpy texts to the radio. The panel at rnz.co.nz. Water expert Mike Joy has texted us, we do not charge for water because officially no one owns it. 
and it's not pristine. Far from it. Uh, 26 <laughs> past And four. if you feel like he's everywhere, you're probably right, because his mission is to make the problems of New Zealand's waterways heard. So what made him want to better understand our waterways and challenge how we treat them? Mike grew up in Christchurch and later Lower Hutt. His dad was a police officer, but from an early age, he went the other way, deciding not to toe the line, but instead to stick two fingers up to authority. As a teen, it was just for the sake of it, for the thrill. There's, there's me as the lout back then, the boy racer. <laughs> a flick through his photo albums doesn't reveal the makings of a stereotypical Tweedy academic, but rather a bit of a bogan with a love of cars. Well, it was the car and girls, I think, was the trouble. But the car got me into trouble because at lunchtimes and things we would go off and get into fights with other schools. But also hanging around at Sacred Heart Girls College and um, I got banned because I was, I'd been caught driving in and doing a wheelie on the roundabout at, 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 the, at the girls' school and driving out again. And so, um, that, I mean, it was it's pretty petty minor stuff, but... Um, it, it, in the day, that was, you know, it could get you into a lot of trouble at mm. school. Yeah. So, as a student, you perhaps wouldn't describe yourself as a, a pleaser. No, no. I, I actually got suspended a, uh, on a number of occasions, just stupid things like the car. Or I remember there was a big hassle about uniform. Um, you had to wear. You were allowed to wear long trousers, but they had to be of a particular, you know, um, the one that the school decided on, and I had some corduroy, black corduroys, and and uh, and I got told that um, if I continued to wear them, then I wouldn't be able to come to school. So uh, I'd be suspended, and so I was suspended because <laughs> I refused to give in. So yeah, um, I guess I, I I had a bit of a, um, a disrespect for authority if I couldn't see a good reason for it, you know. So. Um, but you know. as he got older he found he could put his rebellious streak to a purpose. After leaving school, he started working, first at a recycling factory. And, yeah, that was in the 70s, before recycling was cool. Then taxi driving, and later as a farmhand. Always tinkering, he and a friend bought an old yacht named Yvonne. They did her up in between his taxi shifts. And then I think the first time I got involved in anything controversial was not long after, we'd made lots of friends while building the boat with yachties and um, one of them, um, Chris, was involved in the Peace Squadron and it was the time that the nuclear warships were visiting New Zealand. And so we, um, we used uh, Yvonne as part of the first protest. I think it was the Truxton that was coming into Wellington and we had a had a, a, a sail with a big peace sign on it and peace squadron written on it and we went out to protest the the ship coming in and, and I felt very strongly about the threat of, of nuclear war in those days and was very anti, anti-nuke and so that was, yeah, I think that was the first time, I'd, well, was the first time I'd ever, ever protested. Mm. Um, and, and What was it like? Oh, well, it would, the, the funniest thing was, um, well it wasn't that funny but the police didn't, at the time, didn't have a police launch in Wellington and I think it was the, they'd lost one of them in a storm. Or anyway, they they commandeered this this um, launch, and before the ship, the the um, nuclear ship even came over the horizon, 
they they came alongside us and and put lines aboard and forced us out of the way over by Ward Island, just just basically piracy when I think back now. Mm-hmm. But but what what was and this was and all this is great learning I guess for me and about some of the realities. TV One were there. They had a boat out on the water. They were filming the the protest boats, and they came over to interview us and. Um, Chris, the, the Peace Squadron guy, was standing on... I was skippering the boat, and, and Chris was standing on the stern being interviewed by the TV1 crew, right, you know, sort of within metres of him, holding out the microphone on another boat. And every time Chris went to answer the questions from the TV crew, the uh, owner of the of the commandeered launch would, um, would, would make the horn go on the boat, so just completely blank out everything he said, just over and over again and when we tried to stop him um, the police just just told us to shut up but it, but in a way it was great because TV1 did show that happening and, and you could see the policemen in the film clip with their uniforms on on this boat that was blasting out the sound so that you couldn't interview um, Chris but so you know I mean that was, you know, it, was, it, was a, it was a part of the beginning of me I think um, learning to distrust the establishment in a way, you know, because there was really underhand tactics that were going on there. There was nothing honest or... Mike came late to academia. Despite passing his university entrance exams at high school, no-one in his family had been, so it never occurred to him to go himself. So what changed to make him decide to start an ecology degree in his 30s? He says a couple of big dries... First, it was the horrors of working as a labourer, covered in dust and blood on a drought-stricken sheep farm in Australia. And then, the drying up of the odd jobs that had kept him in boats, cars and adventures over the years. Well, I think partly it was because we had been able to just walk from job to job up until that point. So it was, um, you know, early 90s, I guess it was after that 87 crash and it was suddenly much harder to just go walk into somewhere and and it, so there was and there was dissatisfaction with doing rubbish jobs all the time as well wanting to to do something worthwhile but yeah also the beginning of an awareness for me of um for of our environmental plight so we were on this sheep station where it hadn't rained for 4 years and we were you know we just killed 6,000 sheep because there was no food for them and then went and marked 11,000 lambs after that and the only things that were thriving on that lamb were the emus that we would shoot the occasional one for to feed the dogs for tucker for the dogs while at the same time in New Zealand there was an emu craze going on here and emus were selling for $60,000 a pair in New Zealand, while across that ditch, we're shooting them for dog tucker over there and trying to trying to keep these woolly things, you know, in this landscape where they didn't belong, where the roos and emus and all the wild animals are perfectly happy, and we're trying to, you know, trying to look after, you know, just just the idiocy of of um, farming the wrong things in the wrong place really struck me there, which I'm sure, you know, sort of in, in a way made me much more critical of what we were doing or made me me look again at what we were doing in this country as well. So he and his partner Ali Hewitt both decided to go to university. They moved to Bulls, about half an hour from Massey's Palmerston North Campus. They scored a free house through a friend. As part of a deal, they'd do a bit of DIY on the place. 
they lived cheaply and got stuck in to study. Much of the next few years were spent in gumboots, spotlighting at night in streams around Taranaki, looking for native fish like short-jaw kokopu, a threatened species that makes up one of the five types of juvenile fish that end up in whitebait patties. Mike's research interest was in biomonitoring, where fish and invertebrates living, or that should be living, in a waterway are used as a measure and predictor of its health. He predicted, using mathematical models, where fish and invertebrates should be living based on communities at healthy sites, then compared that to what's present, or not, at a test site. His postgraduate research in this area continued, and then he was awarded his doctorate in ecology in 2003. Mike's research also puts our often forgotten urban freshwater under the microscope. Sylvie, do you remember um, how many we had by the time we got here last time? Um, we had one banded cockapoo and we had the like six koato down in the pool. We had a good like 20, 30, um, yeah. He's supervising the Masters of Victoria University Environmental Studies student Sylvie McLean. Tonight they're spotlighting for whitebait species Koraro and banded Kokopu, and Koda, a freshwater crayfish, also known as crawlies. They're a spotty mottled green and do a good impersonation of a rock, but Mike and Sylvie seem to have no trouble spotting them with their trained eyes. So we're, we're, at, we're in the Aro Valley in the Waimapihi stream. Um, we're, well, this is the headwaters of the Waimapihi, and there's lots of tributaries that come down, but it's in a, it's in a city where we're probably, I don't know, I guess... Sylvie's research looks at our attitudes to the waterways that flow through and under our cities. Where we're standing is where the stream ends its flow through the pretty bush of Wellington's Greenbelt and meets the city streets, beginning its course as a forgotten underground waterway. So I'm looking at the Waimpahi stream and I'm looking at kind of how people value and perceive a stream and whether it changes in the kind of natural part and in the pipe and kind of a part of that is looking at if fish add to how you like value and perceive a stream. And so that's where Mike comes in. I've got two supervisors. So. Sylvie has her own connection to the stream. She grew up around here in one of the houses resting on the roads above it. It's been piped for about 150 years. She remembers how the local children loved playing on its banks and would have their birthday parties at the reserve where the stream ends its flow through the bush. It's a cherished spot for many locals, but she says most had no idea where it goes once it heads through the grassy banks that give way to a concrete rubbish-filled pipe under the city. So there's a there's a, a kura there, a kawaru. There was a little crayfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were, there's a few of them. We just saw one there. They're quite cool. They're like um, like possums. Their little uh, eyes shine up, so you can see them quite easy because you see the bright um, the two the glow of the eyes. They just swam off under that. Yeah, under I that saw that. Oh, you've got a good eye. She hopes the research she's doing with Mike will give people a better understanding of the freshwater species living under the capital and maybe even a stake in protecting them. Lots of people I talked to didn't even know about it and so now they do like a little bit and 
as I started talking to them, everyone was interested in it, in it, and they were really surprised about the fish coming up it. That was quite a big thing for people, and so that kind of it got them thinking. Like she says, making it more visible to the public could change how they treat the city waterway. Another aspect of it is there's three pieces of art along the piped section that kind of commemorate it and or connect, try and connect people to it. And so another part of what I was talking about is ways of connecting to the stream potentially through that art and whether adding other bits of art or doing different things. There's ideas of like daylighting it, so bringing it up in the city or things about like making a window down to the stream so people can see it so they're a bit more aware of it and so doing things like glass um, footpaths or something over where it goes and so then if you saw a fish coming up it you'd be like oh my god that's a stream and that would people, things people pour down as well as just like detergents and stuff from cafes or people washing their cars so if you saw a fish you'd be like oh, I won't do that I'll put it in my sink where it gets um, like treated and goes out. Mike says people don't tend to care about what they can't see. Well, it's going to be very hard for people to have a connection with a stream that they can't see. It's under their feet. Some of them know it's there, but most of them don't, and so they won't tend to, um, you know, that, that connection is lost basically with the stream. Whereas if you hang around with the stream and you're on the banks of it and you can see it and you see the flow from the street washing and pipes going into it, then you um, people tend to understand much more about their impacts on, on fresh water. It may be easy to ignore the stream that's flowing under your city or the state of a river on a farm you drink the milk from but never go to. I've always said if the if nitrate turned rivers red, you know, we would not have a problem. It's only because you can't see it. but the water people are drinking from their taps every day and the effects it could be having on their body are what Mike's hoping might engage people in the conversation about the threat to our fresh water and what's emerging as a very direct threat to ourselves. For Mike, the research that's getting him excited at this stage of his career is finding out more about how intensive farming and pollution of our waterways could be affecting us humans. In 2018, a study by Danish researchers found there was a link between nitrates and bowel cancers, and that was at pollution levels much lower than tap water in New Zealand is considered safe to drink. Nitrates from fertiliser and farm animal effluent get into the water supply and are difficult to filter out. He and his research assistant, Jane Richards, are out on the road collecting samples in mid-Canterbury. The bigger town of Ashburton, and also the tiny settlement of Hines between Ashburton and the Rangitata rivers, which he's heard might have high levels of nitrate in the town water supply. He gathers his samples in small plastic pots at the taps of a sink in a service station and a cafe bathroom. Later in the day, they pull up at a popular swimming and picnic spot to grab out the samples and test what the Heinz and Ashburton locals are drinking. The first to be tested is Heinz. So let's let's run these um, drinking water ones. We, we stopped in Heinz and we stopped in Ashburton to um, to get some water from out of the the, the the water supply that everybody's drinking in town. Mm -hmm. 
um, do you want to run this one through and then let's see see what the where the drinking water's at yeah see okay so that's 6.42 is the significant increase in the risk of getting colorectal cancer is at 0.87 milligrams and the 15% increases at 2.1 milligrams, so that's three times. Mm. And, and the studies look like about for every milligram, there's every four milligrams, there's another 10% increase in risk. So that's that's actually that's halfway to the maximum allowable value. This would be triggered um, through the Ministry of Health because yeah, it's okay, it's yeah. it's half yeah. of MAV. The the MAV is the 11.3, which is the the the, um, the standard that we have at the moment, which doesn't relate to colorectal cancer, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, that's really high. Yeah. So that's Heinz, six point four two. This one's Ashburton's water. Let's mm-hmm. see what the people of Ashburton are drinking, and there may be variation within the town. So this was kind of from the service station, so. Um, 6.49 before. Oh, that's interesting. Half of it, 3.7. It's still, it's still higher, you know, than that 15% increase in risk. It's still really, really high, but it's it's half of what it is in Heinz. Aotearoa has one of the highest rates of bowel cancer in the world. So Mike's now teamed up with leading public health researcher Professor Michael Baker from Otago University in Wellington to find out what high nitrate levels in drinking water could mean for New Zealanders and our second most deadly cancer. I got a, um, an award a few years ago, the Critic and Conscience, New Zealand University's Critic and Conscience Award, which came with a nice $50,000 prize money to be not to be spent on a, things for the boat, unfortunately, but um, only for research stuff. So I spent half of it on a really uh, high-level mobile uh, nitrate meter so I could go down and, and I could go to a river and... I could stick it, the probe in here right now and tell you what the nitrate levels are very accurately in this river. And so um, doing that and finding data that was already existing, I found that a huge number of people in the South Island uh, have their drinking water uh, at, with levels of nitrate that are past these um, danger levels for colorectal cancer. And so um, I'm now part of a research group with um, Otago School of Medicine We've got a master's student and a postdoc starting soon to try to get a, a handle on, you know, what extent this is an issue in New Zealand. We know that we have the highest rates of colorectal cancer in the developed world and the highest rates are in New Zealand are in South Canterbury and Southland where these nitrate levels are really high. The nitrate levels in the water have come from intensive farming. We've got very shallow, light, gravelly soils there. So the intensive, the, the big conversion from from crops to cows over the last 20, 30 years in both Canterbury and Southland have meant that massive increases in the amount of nitrogen going into waterways. The waterways, and this is, this is often this is misunderstood, it's not directly from the fertiliser, it's via the cows. The fertiliser is put onto the paddocks and, and uh, the cows then put a little bit of that nitrate they, they eat the grass that's grown from the nitrate, a little bit goes into the milk, mostly just gets excreted out through their urine, and the urine then 
with high levels of nitrate goes down into the waterway. So it's via the cows that the nitrate gets into the drinking water. All of the drinking water in Canterbury comes from the aquifers and these aquifers, uh, especially the shallow ones, are dangerously high now in nitrates. So are you specifically trying to find out, you and your your colleague Mm. um, Dr Baker, trying to find out whether the reason we have high incidences of colorectal cancer in New Zealand Mm. is because of our fresh water being full of nitrates? Yeah, I don't know that we're ever going to be able to prove that. I mean, that's a bit like if you were asked to prove whether smoking causes cancer in an individual case, you can't. You just you just got to look at, you know, the proportion of smokers that get lung cancer, you know. So that's you, that's pretty much the only way you can do it because you can't make that direct link. So what we want to do initially is get some feel for um, for all the drinking water in, in, in New Zealand um, you know what are the levels and how do they compare with those levels from that Danish paper and it's there's a heap of research not just from the Danes but also from the US and showing the increases in nitrate and the increases in colorectal cancer so we kind of um, a literature review looking at where everything is and then trying to find because at the moment there's no database no one database of drinking water in New Zealand and and in, in areas like uh, Canterbury many many people are on individual bores just little bores on, on farms and so um, nobody's keeping track of, of what's in, what those levels are so that's what we're going to try and get a handle on Mm-hmm. And so what stage are you at with this research? Um, pretty early on, just pulling together data sets and making all the contacts. Ministry of Health have, have, have come on board with us and um, so we are getting some support and and so, and so and uh, lots of uh, water suppliers are agreeing to hand over data so we, we should be able to get somewhere, to have some, some kind of picture hopefully by the middle of next year on, on what's going on in the country. I'm Teresa Cowie and you're listening to Water, a newsroom.co.nz podcast about the researchers devoting their lives to understanding and protecting it. Right now I'm finding out from freshwater ecologist Dr Mike Joy what motivates him to continue his quest for knowledge of our waterways. I I guess I'm... it's sad, but I'm still mostly uh, motivated by anger, um, and so mostly it's responding to um, organisations and and companies and the fake news, the the word that people don't need to change, that it's all all right, we can carry on doing what we're doing, we're just some magic will come along, you know, or the sort of downplaying that happens with, for example, the agricultural industry in in New Zealand where they want to convince everyone that it's all fine and that we don't need to change what we're doing and so that fires me up into wanting to respond because I feel they're getting away with um, with cheating everybody that and that the truth needs to be told. Mm. And I have heard you talk about um, in talks that you've done where a lot of what you do does make you angry <laughs> so how do you cope with that? Um, how do you cope with having to feel angry about the, the pace of change? I mean, I just try to escape when I can, try to look after the mental health and, and having a, uh, a, an 87-year-old Kauri sailing vessel to go and, and 
just escape on is the only way that I get by. It's my it's my therapy is to go work on the boat or get out on the water and kind of try not to think about all this other stuff. And actually magically well not magically but I guess there's like a whole bunch of reasons but when you get out and cook straight on a sailing boat and and uh, the reality of just um, doing what you have to do means that you can't be thinking about other things because there's a whole lot of reality right in your face at the time so there's that kind of you know, I'm really lucky to have that, that that escape that I can um, switch off from all the other stuff yeah. so you literally escape sailing away <laughs> yeah I escape um, both physically and um, and mentally by by getting out in the water but also I think doing jobs on the boat you know, imagine an old boat like that's got got a lot of work to be done and it's and I really crave the feeling of satisfaction of being able to go do something on the boat and see a result for it, because so much of my work I never see a result for. It's incredibly frustrating to be kind of banging away, saying the same thing over and over again and feeling like nothing's changing. Hmm. So give me an example of a job that you might do on your boat where you sort of do it from start to finish and complete it. And- <laughs> well, I think, I think the funny one that occurred to me um, earlier this year is that I found some rot in the deck and... Um, and I realised that when I was, you know, scoping out what I was going to do and how I was going to fix it, that I was actually pleased that I'd found something wrong because then I could go cut this piece out and, and you know, quite a bit of um, work and involved in figuring it out and, and cutting out the new piece and scarfing it in and, and getting everything back to being right again. Um, and interestingly, it's not the original 1932 boat that rotted. It's the bits that have been added on afterwards. But, um, yeah, being able to just just do that job. I mean, I think most of the other people down on the marina would go, oh, no, you know, I've got, this, I've got to do this job, and they see it as a really negative thing. And that's why I was kind of surprised, because I see it as a really fun thing to actually do something um, that I can can look back and, and look at the results and go, wow, that looks great. You know, I did a good job there. I, I actually achieved something today, which is so rare. Because you're never going to finish this, are you? No. no, that's the problem with the job of, of trying to um, save us from ourselves. Is that yeah, I'm, I fear that we're not going to we're not going to get there. Um, and so it is it is frustrating. And it's you you kind of and I totally understand that people don't want to hear about it um, because it's you know everyone likes to have the nice life that they have and carry on having all the toys and doing all the stuff they want to do nobody wants to hear the reality but then ignoring the reality means that things get a lot worse especially for future generations and and that's what I think about I think about what's it going to be like for these kids I've had a I've had a great life but um, what's what's their future going to be and that's another huge motivator for me even though I don't have kids of my own, um, I still feel like I, I really worry for their futures. Mm. So it must be quite hard being the, the killjoy, going around telling everyone how they're doing it wrong. Yeah, it's, re- it's really unfortunate having a name like Joy, isn't it? And, mm. <laughs> and, you, and, and you're known as Dr Doom instead. Yeah, so there's not a good side to it, although a lot of people do appreciate it and um, are really supportive and do want to... I almost feel like there's, 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 um, there's maybe a couple of you know sort of different um people types of people that some some embrace this and can see it and want to know more and want to learn more and others it it just threatens their whole reason for being and their whole um life's choices and things like that and so they they just can't let themselves um face it and so they switch off from it i think it's 
and and even even very well educated and open people will suddenly shut their minds off because it's just too threatening for their whole reason for being. So I, I am becoming more and more aware of that. Do you understand that? You know, you might be a, a young farmer taking mm. on a lot of debt and mm. you've got a family and you, mm. this is the future that you've always wanted. Maybe someone in, in your family did it. Do you kind of, can you get inside that mindset? Oh, yes, certainly. And, and I just, I don't, I've never um, felt angry towards farmers. I feel that they are just as much uh, used in this game as what the rest of us are. Um, or even more so because because they're the ones that have to take on the debt that want to do the right thing but can't and um, it's just really unfortunate for those people who want to live on the land and grow things and that they're caught up in a system that is you know is is virtually leaderless and um, it, the only leaders there are the ones that are trying to profit from this industrial farming system so you know the big dairy companies pushing for more and more production and the big fertiliser companies um, pushing for more, selling more of their products and I really feel that the farmers are, are just squished in between those two um, extremes and then they cop it from the greenies or the, the rest of society because of the damage that they do and, they, and it's really not a nice place to be and it's not, it's not how we should do it. It's, there's just so much evidence that, and it mounts all the time, that doing less, inputting less into farming will, will mean more profit, less impact and, and much happier farmers and happier animals and happier ecosystems. But there's this huge pressure from fertiliser companies, the industry, the banks to push for this far more intensive, or and government, um, you know, pushing for this kind of um, intensification, which means you know, negative outcomes for everybody except the people that are selling the products. You are 60 <laughs> years of age. Remind me. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you'd love to be reminded. Yeah. Uh, five years' time, that might be when people are thinking about uh, retirement. Is that what you're thinking about? Or does this mission have to go on beyond that? Um, I, I would love to retire tomorrow. Um, I, but I don't think I could ever let this go. The trouble is you can't unknow things. It's all right if you don't know it in the first place, and I really, I think I, um, you know, I kind of envy my mates who just care about cricket and rugby and getting another SUV and, and going skiing and things like that. I, that, that would be nice, uh, but you can't unknow this, and so I suspect that I won't be able to let it go, and I'll probably go to my grave angry. I'm, <laughs> I don't think there's much chance that that's going to uh, change. I'm Teresa Cowie and that's Water with Dr Mike Joy. Check out the other two episodes on newsroom.co.nz where I talk to law professor Catherine Irons about water, the law and teaching her students to be prepared to protest. I teach people about protest in class because I do think basically we have to throw a spoke in the wheels of the juggernaut to slow it down if we're going to avert you know, the current courses that we're on. Um, and so, yeah, chain yourself to a gate, even if it just slows it down and gets some attention. And I find out from Antarctic researcher Professor Tim Nash about the science behind remapping the world's coastline as the ice cap hastens its melt. The ice shelves actually 
they don't just melt, they explode, they disintegrate. So we've seen ice shelves the size of um, the Canterbury region disappear in two months, completely disintegrate. And then what happens? Because they're no longer holding back the ice on land, the ice on land flows into the ocean 10 times faster. And you'll be wanting more after that lot. There are also three documentaries in the series you can watch. You can find them at newsroom.co.nz. Water is a Magpie content creation production. Sound was put together by Andrew Dalziel at Valley Audio, with music by Mara TK. The iceberg sounds you heard were recorded by Mark Michel as part of Joseph Michael's installation, Antarctica While You Were Sleeping. It was produced and presented by me, Teresa Cowie. Water was funded by Irirangi Te Motu, New Zealand On Air.